Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. From time to time, I have to remind myself, you need to take a pause. You need to sort of recenter yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to breathe. Now, Dan Nathan has seen the Pearl Jam with Danny Moses. You guys went together, right? Yeah, we went last week. As we're doing this, as you're listening to this, Dan Nathan is probably on a plane headed to DFW. I think that stands for... Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah. And you're going to see the Pearl Jam. Again. Then you're coming back to see the Foo Fighters. Sunday. And then what are you doing? Tuesday. What are you doing? 19th. You're going to... Austin, is Austin, per- Texas. Yeah, to see Pearl Jam again. See the Pearl Jam. By the way, this is the On the Tape <laughs> podcast. I'm Guy Adami. That was Dan Nathan. Danny Moses is here as well. Together. We're together. We're together. We're going to have a conversation with a gentleman named Mike Cow. His Twitter account is Urban Cowboy. But that's not C-O-W. It's K-A-O boy. You should check him out. And we had a far-ranging conversation, Danny, about commodities, bond market, currency differentials, the Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, all those different things. I will tell you, you should listen. Mike worked at J. Aaron. He predated me at J. Aaron, but all those Aaron cats are smart as shit, myself excluded, but you understand what I'm saying. But I mentioned you got to recenter yourself because one of the great Pearl Jam songs, and I'm reminded of this all the time. My grandmother used to say this to me, little guy, just breathe. And that's a Pearl Jam song. It's a if beautiful I'm not mistaken. Pearl. Uh, yeah, is that yeah, a beautiful yeah. Pearl Jam yes, song? Yes, it is. Danny, you want to sing it for us? Or no, us please. Brace in a little bit. We're going to let me win. Oh. Yeah, there you go. Hey, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love. How's that? That's pretty good. That's All off right. the back. Yes, scr- I understand that. The back scratcher album, I think. Every Look at life you. must end. Google works. Google works. I don't know. All right. Yeah. So we're just going to take a breath here. We're just going to breathe. You no, know, you should. We need to breathe because I get myself all exercised about. I watch certain things going on. I watch dollar yen breaking down. We're going to talk to my cow about that. I see what's going on in the commodity market. I see what's going on in the energy market. I see our yields going higher. Yet here I am with the S&P back above 4,500. So I just need 
to take a breath. I just need to breathe, Dan Nathan. Yeah, so we have 4,500. We were 4,600 was the 2023 high. The all-time high was 4,800 in the S&P. That was the first week of January 2022. And Guy, you and I were talking about this a bit earlier. We've seen a whole host of different data. You were calling for a reacceleration in some of the inflationary readings. You thought that might be something that keeps the Fed higher for longer. And ultimately, we might see the kind of knock-on effect with equities. And we just haven't seen it. And like on a day like today, where you just see the S&P just melting up 1% into the close on Thursday, you just say to yourself, the market is just pricing a soft landing. It, it just, with a VIX at 13 right here, Danny, it's going to break below that. It's going to make new, two new 52-week lows. I think if you look at the VIX curve, that there's obviously some trepidation looking out a few months or so, but I'm hard-pressed to think that if we get to the end of the month and we don't have a resolution for this United Auto Workers potential strike, if we have the potential for a government shutdown, if we have from a consumer standpoint, just think about what that might do if we have lots of folks out of work if between Detroit and between Washington. And then when you think about a consumer where the savings rate is being drawn down and a consumer, let's say in their 20s or 30s, that after three years have to start paying back student loans in October, there has to be some sort of softness that the consumer is about to face as we head into the holiday season here in Q4, Danny. Energy stocks are certainly leading the charge, right? Nat gas, oil, that's not good for the U.S. consumer. Let's keep it simple. ECB went today, they raised 25 basis points. And at the same time, they took down GDP. They gave you stagflation. They basically described it. Germany's actually used the word at this point. You're right, Dan, they're done. And are we done? Are we next? So we're now down to a 3% chance we weren't going to raise next week anyway. I know that. BOE's next week as well, by the way. The, the odds, what's happened on the Fed funds curve is that higher for longer is setting in for sure. The odds of a rate cut are not moving up. They're not being pulled forward at all. And I think that's very telling. To your point, Dan, people want to describe a soft landing. It's going to be very difficult to have a soft landing where energy prices are here. This is a direct effect. You looked at retail sales and you really strip it away what happened in the numbers today. It's gas. It's at the pump where money is being spent right now. And so the airlines are telling us it's an issue, right? We're starting to see that. Transportation companies are telling us that it's starting to be an issue. Forget about what it does to inflation. I'm just saying on an outright basis. So these are things that are happening in real time. And so, listen, we're going to get through the Fed next week. S&P is flat now for the month. I mentioned that is because I'm tracking my mm -hmm. bet with one Tom Lee, with Tom Lee yeah. So we're flat for the years. We drifted lower, lower, and in one day we get back kind of 1% 1, 1 here. Yeah, so. so this is really interesting, and, and this was entirely off the record, so I'm not going to say any names or anything like that, but I was at a dinner Wednesday night with about 15 folks, some prominent market participants, okay? One was a former CEO of a major U.S. investment bank. Another was a huge strategist at a major investment bank, a couple media folk, a CEO of a publicly traded company right now with significant market cap. And, you know, it was just kind of an open conversation. And it was really interesting to me because the gentleman who was hosting the dinner asked for a show of hands on a bunch of different questions as it related to the consumer, as it related to the economy, as it related to the market. And it was really interesting to me that there was just a lot of complacency. So when the question about recession Okay, no one was raising their hands that they see one coming up. We know we've been tracking the odds of a recession or at least the some of the, the, the metrics or the statistics that a bunch of strategists or economists gauge the potential for. We've been seeing those coming down. And the handful of folks that actually raised their hand that they see a recession in 2023, even those said it doesn't really matter for the markets. And Guy, I used an expression, it, it's pretty fascinating that you've used this again and again, that the Fed has alchemied out these cycles. So a recession used to always just be the equivalent of a market sell-off, a, a correction at the very least, and, and maybe a 20% drop or so. So it's just interesting that this time last year, 
the stock market was pricing a near certainty of a recession. This year, the stock market is doing the exact opposite. And something's got to give in 2024, in my Well, opinion. it's interesting. I mean, I think people view recessions as a bad, like it's some four-letter word. Like it's a bad, and I understand it's not a fun thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's a natural part of the business cycle. But if you think you can alchemy out the recession portion, as you say, Dan, have at it. Of course, the problem is it comes back in spades. You can only do that for so long until it comes back and it's five times worse than it would have been. So that's my sort of two cents there. And complacency with a VIX below 13, yeah, the complacency is right in front of your faces on your fact set machine with a VIX now either side of 13, clearly. But in terms of what's going on on the ground, there are problems. And Danny, think about this. I'm glad you mentioned the ECB, which by the way, I think in terms of what's going on, they're probably six to nine months ahead of where we are. They have made the decision that inflation is a bigger problem than their slowing economy. Think about that. So they have to combat one or the other. They can try to get their economy back on its feet, which would require them to probably cut rates. But on by doing that, the inflation problem would just get that much worse. So they have decided in all their wisdom that, you know what, damn the torpedoes in terms of the economy, full speed ahead in terms of combating inflation, then they continue to raise rates. So think about what they're up against. And if you don't think it's coming home to roost here, I don't think you're paying attention, Danny Moses. Yeah, listen, the other reason for the S&P acting like this, again, we are still the sexiest game in town. We look around the globe, who has the most growth? It's us. Money's going to come back here, right? It's us. The dollar, obviously, you're seeing it get off the mat again. Strengthening here, it's us, right? So you could argue that's easy. It's supply and demand. Where's money going to? It needs to find a home. So I realize that European stocks can rally for a day or two on the ECB being done, but it's not a pretty picture over there, this inflationary picture, which I just talked about. And again, if we can shift to Japan for a second, I don't want to harp on it for a long time, but I, I, it's something that I've failed to mention in all the time we've been talking about Japan. And Peter Bookvar is writing on this ad nauseum. He's been long Japanese banks as long as I've been reading his stuff over the last year. There's a couple of U.S. ADRs which you can own, right? SMFG, Sumitomo Mitsui, and, and uh, MUFG. MUFG, Mitsubishi, right? MUFG owns 22% of Morgan Stanley, I believe. So if you want that exposure, great. Look at those stocks, what they've done. And why do I bring those up? Historically, globally, banks do well when yield curves are steepening, right? You get to borrow from your central bank at X and you lend at high. We know that the yield curve control, which has been shifting in Japan, we see the 10-year yields moving higher. People are now getting ahead of that end game. And these are the best looking charts you can find in the market. People say, why should I care about? Okay, don't care about the yen. Don't care about JGBs and where the 10-year yields are trading. But you want to do something and act on it. Look at those charts. It's not lost on me that they're starting to get to the levels where they started to begin their experiment with holding their rates down. It's a big positive because money repatriates back to Japan. Peter Bookvar, you should subscribe to and read all about this, but he's been long these things. It's just something to look at. I think we would all agree <laughs> that the CEO of NVIDIA is a brilliant man. Yeah, Jensen Wang. Jensen Wang. Yeah. Very brilliant, smart. Brilliant, very smart man. You Timing just said is everything. Did Timing is everything. A, do you agree he's a smart oh, man? Of course, he's, he's, he's got to be, he's gotta be a genius. Yeah. Yeah. We have agreed that he's a genius. It was just announced that he sold $27 million worth of NVIDIA stock. $27 million more dollars. Yeah, more, up to $70 million now. $70 million. Well, a bit of a rounding error of what he Okay, well, let's, I mean, let's not be, play the let's, rounding error let's game. Be let's say, I mean, he made a decision. To, That's still a lot of money. Still a lot of money. Yeah. So he's saying, holy well, shit. He probably, his kids probably need braces or something My like that. My point is, I mean? like, if we acknowledge that this is a brilliant man, so he sees something. Now you're going to say, you know what, guy, don't be an asshole. He owns a lot of it. He's just taking, he's diversifying. But I think it's important to point out that at this part, he might be sitting back and saying, holy shit, 
look what's going on here. I got to take some money off the table. So if it's good enough for Jensen to sell Danny Moses, all right, guys, he, he owns eighty six million. I shares, get it. Okay, eighty six so, uh, million. Make a big deal out of it. Yes, let's. Have he's, it. he's. I'll make a bit. It's a lot he's of money. Selling so stock. Took stock off the table. Listen, I would have too. It's moved like this. It's not to say it's going down. We would have sold most of it at one hundred and ten dollars. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, I would have gone. Right. <laughs> I was short that thing. Exactly. It's, it's interesting to note this week Oracle was down what thirteen percent the day after yes. its earnings and sales. And, and, and again, we spent some time talking about Microsoft into its print in late July and the way Apple reacted to its print. And there was a, a whole host of mega cap tech stocks that did not act particularly well. There were two that did act well, Google and Amazon. I think they were two of the net underperformers or relative underperformers in Q2 and they've held up. So I just put that Oracle in, in the kind of footnote category of some of these big cap tech stocks that have seen a little bit of excitement. And I say a little bit. Not that I want to get all stock markety here. Yeah, why not? But, but this is actually a broader conversation quickly. So Oracle's had a tremendous move. Prior to earnings, Oracle was making an all-time high. Think about that for a second. All-time high in the stock. They report earnings. I get it. Disappointing. Oracle trades at a market multiple. 18-ish, 18 and a half times. 77% now of their revenue is from basically high visibility, recurring revenue stream businesses. Good for them. Historically, that type of stock, that type of company gets rewarded with a premium multiple. Now we can say they deserve it. That's not my point. So if Oracle, which has high visibility, recurring revenue stream in the right businesses can go down 14% on a basically okay quarter, what does that tell you about stocks that trade three turns of what Oracle's trading? It says that the same thing could happen. So I'm just throwing it out there because if they can take Oracle to the woodshed, they can certainly do it with some of these other names. And look Danny. what they did in Netflix, just on a comment that ad sales were slower than expected at a conference that the CFO was speaking at. Again, those are when you're in this type of market and things are priced to perfection. That's what can happen. And, and so you just got to pay attention. Well, it's interesting about the Netflix and the ad sales comment, because one of the things I think that helped this stock over the course of the last year, you know, it had sold off 75% from its 2021 highs to its lows last year was the introduction of an ad supported model, the crackdown on password sharing. Advertising for a company like this is very high margin, right? You think about how much money they spent on original content. So it is interesting that stock went from 450 about a week and a half ago to where it is right now at about $400. And that two-day move that we saw Wednesday and Thursday off that one comment, that can be extrapolated. Hey, listen, man, Elon Musk is suing, okay, on behalf of Twitter, the Anti-Defamation League. Okay, this is, again... He is a free speech absolutist. Is that what they call him? That's what he calls himself. And he's suing the Anti-Defamation League, okay, because he's claiming that their 60% drop in ad sales has to do with comments that they're making. Think about that for a second. I just want you to like let that sink in. He spent $44 billion in the name of free speech, and now he's turning around and suing the Anti-Defamation League for defamation because his business sucks. Okay, I think that's really interesting here nor there. But let's then, the flip side of that coin is, earlier this week, one of the Jonas Brothers upgraded I actually Tesla. was going to say Jonas Brothers. Took, we didn't even talk. Yeah. Let's, well, you the guys, Jonas Brothers, you the dad three jokes. of them, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Three, well, no, there's four now. No, but, but now? actually, they're all Their mom had another kid. The no, oh. he's yeah. the fifth oh. because there's some, like, some little Jonas. Oh, they call okay. him the bonus Jonas. I got it. But anyway, Adam Jonas, who is Doji now- or Dojo or Doji, 
Gucci star or something. He is. Congratulations. $500 billion are adding to the market. Congratulations to Adam Jonas because Henry Blodgett should be taking a huge sigh of relief because he just took his spot. You worked with Henry. He just took his spot from 1999 with all the Amazon fiasco and the separation of bank and research and all that. Remember, Morgan Stanley is one of the biggest lenders to Tesla in many different areas, actually to Musk and many of his different companies. You're saying they don't have a Chinese wall? Well, I'm just saying that, but but here's the thing. He's an auto analyst, right? Adam Jonas, right? He had the epiphany that all of a sudden the dojo is worth $500 billion. And let me just give you the quote from his note. It says, while it is difficult to explicitly validate that many claims Tesla has made about dojo's cost and performance, we believe Tesla has a chance of bringing forth a competitive, customized solution given the company's innovation track record and capabilities. So on the website- right, hold, hold on a second. I have wrote, to ask, why are you saying that in your- Come, come to the front, stage? front stage? I don't know, voice. because the only place it's believable. I mean, I'm, it's I'm Fantasy saying, Island. Anyway, please hold continue. On. But on, if you go to Morgan Stanley's website, Adam Jonas, question, where do your best ideas come from? He goes, they bubble up from different sources, maybe from a conversation with the CEO. He writes it. Oh. So, you know, he's looking for a reason. He's an auto analyst, right? And, and now he's actually called head of global auto and shared mobility research. And he admitted he took a lot of shit for that upgrade, which he should just literally hit at a hold rating on the stock 250. It is what it is. It did move the stock. It did move the stock 8 to 10%. Dream the dream. Imagine taking that attitude towards many of these other companies, right? People are giving NVIDIA the benefit of the doubt. I'd soon give NVIDIA the benefit of the doubt on future revenues and AI chips versus I would on Tesla. But again, you see something like that. You woke up, really, guys? You got that board? What's behind this? And I'll tell you this. If there is an equity offering coming in Tesla or something fishy, hello. I mean, so. When I saw that note, I immediately said, okay, if Danny's reading this right now, his head's going to explode. And he needs to just breathe. Going back to what I started. Yeah, the you know what? I didn't take you a breath during that entire breathe. thing. Now, do you think banks are important here in the United States? Yes, yeah, so there was been a big bank conference, the Barclays Bank Conference. It's interesting, right? Yeah. I think banks are important. I think Pretty banks important. Are, You know why banks are important? Because banks lend money. And our economy, Dan, last I looked, is 73% driven by people buying shit. And as we've come to learn, people buying shit, not with money they have, with money they're borrowing. In order for our economy to continue to sort of move, the mechanisms need to work. Yep. And they seem to be working just, I don't want to say they're not, they're working just fine. You know what's not working just fine? If you look, Bank of America, pretty important bank, within a whisper of a 52-week low. Citibank, last I looked, still an important bank. That's getting to levels we haven't seen in many years. Now, obviously, Citibank just announced some restructuring. They're going to change a lot of things. You know what? That's as they say, what is that, lipstick on a pig or something? That's the thing. I only bring this up because banks had a huge rally after Silicon Valley Bank. From March into June or something, a lot of these banks had significant rallies. They're starting to level off again. And again, I don't. I'm, you're going to say, guy, you're flailing here. You're looking for reasons to be bearish. Maybe I am. But the bank performance over the last couple of weeks... I think Dan Nathan is telling a bit of a story. Listen, if we lost some of the biggest regional banks in March and April because of their inability to match, like they're held to maturity securities versus the deposit outflow that they saw. And with rates higher for longer, and you think about these large money center banks and you think of the competition for those deposits, I don't know, man, like what's going on with Bank America? What's going on with Citigroup? And I get it if you think about these like vast treasury portfolios they have, but we knew that if rates go higher, it makes it that much harder. And especially, again, there is competition for those deposits for higher yields. At the end of the day, we just had this first IPO, this this 50 billion plus, this is the arm thing. So maybe the IPO market's coming back. There's been some M&A of late. So maybe M&A is coming back. There's a lot going on in the kind of leverage loan market and stuff like that. I don't think we saw anything in Q2 earnings or the commentary from banks that would lead you to believe that their businesses are back. You know what I mean? Not in the kind of 2021 form that they were when we had a bit of a frenzy post that 2020 period. 
So what are those banks being weighed down on? Danny, you tell me if we think that like this mismatch of these durations, is that what's going on here? And I guess you could tear into the balance sheet well, so you could see what's going on here a little bit. But the banks act horrible. This week, they're not so horrible. I'm just looking at the Barclays conference was this week. All the big banks got up and spoke. I think there's safety in the big banks. Now, City has its own issues. Bank America, we know from a balance sheet perspective, has its own issues. To your point you just made about IPO market potentially coming back, those are the capital market banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and so forth. Those are actually performing okay. I think there's a fine place to hide, right? We talked about that last week on the podcast. The regional banks, to me, you just mm-hmm. there's no point in owning them at this point. It really isn't. They're in absolute no man's land. Now, I'm not saying to go out and short them necessarily, but if you want exposure and you need exposure to the banks, though, Dan, and eventually people think the, the Fed is going to be done and so forth, and the yield curve maybe goes through a steepening process, get it through the big banks. But the one area, right, again, I go back to this, is the consumer credit area. Like, what is that going to look like? It's not cataclysmic. It's not horrible. But those are the Wells Fargo Bank America. J.P. Morgan, right, I believe, you know, Fortress Balance Sheet and so forth. Just go read what he said this week. And he's Thank you. you. Just Thank you. Thank you. He being Jamie Dimon. I was going to say, what's the most important bank in the world? You were going to say J.P. Morgan. Correct. And I was going to say to you, Danny, who runs J.P. Morgan? And you were going to say Jamie Dimon. And I was going to say to you, Danny Moses, do you read what Jamie Dimon said the other day? He effectively said, and I'm paraphrasing, there's no reason to own banks here. He doesn't just throw things out willy-nilly like I do. He's actually a thoughtful person. So if Jamie Dimon is telling you not to own banks, why should you own banks, Danny Moses? Listen, if you're a portfolio manager at a large Boston fund, you got to allocate to financials. Right? You can underweight financials, you can over, but you got to allocate. My point is this, that's what you're going to own. So you have to own it. Some people have to own it if you have to be there. Listen, it's again, these companies are fine. If you're bullish, if you're a soft landing person, that is where you want to be. So I'll push back on that and say, I want to, and Goldman Sachs is interesting, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen with David Solomon. But okay. April of next year, okay. he'll step you, down. All right. We'll maybe... mark it down here. No, I, you, you could be right. Right now he's firing people that perform, not perform poorly, they actually potentially broke code and yeah. so forth. So things are starting. You feel like something's happening there. That stock has massively underperformed, at least what we thought its potential was in this type of market. It's a great trading company. They do well with trading and so forth. I don't know. So I wouldn't be short that stock right now because it feels like maybe things are finally in motion, cleaning up the consumer side of their business, whatever. Again, there's always a price for things. And I would tell you, I don't think these are, bad places to be. And I don't think the one thing we don't know is the regulators, it seems, are going to maybe cave a little bit in terms of what they're going to be requiring from a well, capital Well, you say that because I think the reasons Jamie Dimon said what he said was to alert the regulators exactly. that they're being, they could potentially be too draconian. And think about this. So it's some code like Morse code or like smoke think about Think about this with our thesis that we kind of have, the three of us in general, just on where we think the economy and the market. Common sense tells you the regulators are going to back off a little bit on the banks because they're going to need them to trans- as a transmission vehicle, right? I've been saying all along, if treasuries keep running like this and quantitative tightening keeps going, who's going to be the facilitator and owner of these treasuries? They're going to need the banking system. So if you think out of the box on something like that and think ahead, three steps ahead where that would be, I can own the banks here because there's nothing cataclysmic. It, it's also pretty fascinating when you talk about where they allocate within financials. Look at what these private equity companies have done, the publicly listed ones. Look look at Blackstone, KKR, Apollo, Aries. These stocks are, are making at least 52-week highs, in some cases, all-time highs, like serious market cap. Blackstone has a market cap that is almost equal to Morgan Stanley, greater than Goldman Sachs. And you think about how opportunistic these companies are being right now as banks have had to pull back on different activities and the like. So it is a pretty fascinating juxtaposition. And I also wonder, Jamie, over the course of the last couple of years, 
has also warned about fintech and, and the kind of regulatory mismatch that his bank has faced relative to some of the upstarts. And if you think about the Blackstones, the Apollos and the like, these are now the smartest guys in the room. Guy, I hate to tell you, when you were over at Goldman back in the day, that's the moniker you guys used to have. I'm just saying. Like, Maybe it's moved. If you had to choose your fighter, are you, are you choosing Blackstone Apollo over J.P. Morgan and Wells like, every day of the week? Like, Come like on, Danny. Every, 100%. Day, every, every Listen, day of the week. People have to understand on these private equity models, you talk about guaranteed recurring earnings and revenue, there's a management fee implied on hundreds of billions of dollars that they're going to be getting in perpetuity. So when you have that type of model right there, I mean, yeah, you're going to need, you're going to need to obviously sell assets. You're going to need to have some events occur to materialize, right? Some of these earnings over time. So if the, if the market stays closed for a long time, it's your point on M&A and IPOs. But if those markets open up, those are great business. So here, here's a friend of, of mine and Duration guys. of capital. This, this is Jeff Richards from GGV. JR. All right. So well, what, JR's got mad hops. If he's listening right now. I hope so. No, but no, no but, but, The guy can ball, but, but the, the, so, so the guy was a software entrepreneur in the 90s, and then he's been a VC. A very player. Well, yes, yes, but, but a very successful, very successful VC in the enterprise software space. Sure. So, so when Danny just described, it's funny, like the recurring revenue model of, let's say, some of these private equity companies. So we, I, I lean on Jeff for some great stuff in tech. He's been on the pods a month. You, sure. You've done it with him. You know what? He always tags me every once in a while. He just will text me BX. He did it last week. <laughs> he buys it on every dip. Yeah. It's, I think it's what, so, you know, that and some of these recurring yeah, well, revenue was, models in the software so, space, he for loves. about an eight month period of time. That was pretty painful, but it's gotten yes. back on its source. So by the way, what do they say? Stocks mentioned on this podcast. So one of them was ARES, $32 billion, all-time high this week. Mike Arigetti. Indulge me. Will you indulge me for a second, sure. Danny? Dan, will you indulge me for sure. a second? Sure, indulged. My birthday is in December. December 18th. Big one. December Coming. 18th. 60. Docs, stocks. Brad Pitt, same day. Yeah, Docs. Same exact day. Keith yep. Richards, 20 years old. So I'm going to be 60. Keith will be 80. I can do that math. Yep. Kiefer Sutherland's born that day. Yep. I can get Katie Holmes. I can go on and on and on and on and on. You know who else was born that day? Christina Aguilera. Now you say, oh, okay, yeah. stop it, please. But her famous, one of her, and I have big, I have some Christina on my I don't Spotify playlist. I don't list. believe it. I'm telling you right now. I don't now. believe it. Okay. I, I'm telling you right yeah. now. Fighters on my playlist. Okay. I love her. She's I met her at the Super Bowl in Atlanta years ago. But keep really? going. Yeah, keep going. But one of her songs, I think, was the Genie in a Bottle. Yep. You remember that song? Of course. But you, Danny Moses, you've been out front of a company with a similar name. Yep. Genie. It's not in a bottle. It's no. out there for you to Genius trade. Genius Sports. Genius Sports. G-E-N-I. Genie. Yeah. Genie in a Bottle. Genie. That's why I brought it up. Right. I brought it up a couple months ago. I know. When, right. it, was Sports five, gambling when company. it was a $5 stock. Right. And it went to eight. Now it's back kind of that level. Because Apex, right, the company that it basically merged into a SPAC with that owned it, unloaded 20 million shares, right? So they took ownership down from 25 to 15%. People knew it was coming. They placed 20 million shares of this company, which trades a couple million shares a day. Yes, it dropped the stock down. I would be buying this stock. I would be literally table pounding on this thing here because since I mentioned it and since this quarter has come out, they extended their contract with the NFL. They extended a contract with the English Premier League. They Love beat the numbers League. and they got it to be free cash flow positive in the back half of the year. And it's just over a billion market cap. And the NFL owns almost 10% of the company. And it's NFL season guy. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Will. G E N I here. I backed the truck up on it. By the and way, you know who listens to this podcast is the big tall guy from Britain. Wilford Frost. I know. I love Wilford. Yeah. His team is Gunners. Remember that? Yeah. Gunners. I do. I, I love the I'm going to see a, I'm going to see a game with him in January Wait, at so Arsenal. They play in January? Yeah. It's cold there. It is cold. We're going to, yeah. And they play the football? Yeah, they're going to play the way, Crystal Palace. 
And how would you get to London? How would I get to yeah. London? Yeah, would you fly? I can't swim. I mean, can we address these airlines for a second, Let's honestly? Because you, you looked at this jet start, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. But look at Delta and American and yes. what they're saying. And yes, we know fuel costs have been killing them, right? But it's the labor costs that are, it's the maintenance costs that are killing them, right? And so now you just had the greatest service expansion of consumer post-COVID, go travel everywhere. These airlines that are rent to stocks, they always have been. I've always mm -hmm. told people. And what happens, I'm not saying it's going to happen this time, when these stocks, again, what if we go into a recession? What if oil goes to 120? Guess who's writing the check? The U.S. government's going to write a check to these companies. I'm not saying they're that dire, but you look at Southwest. Look at these charts. And I'll tell you this, flip side, the symbol of American Airlines is AAL. Uh, you sure. know what it used to be? AMR. AMR, which is a metallurgical company, which Porter and Vinny have been pitching, right, along with BTU. Look at these stocks. They wishes they were AMR. Look at AMR stock, Dan, <laughs> on that thing. The new AMR is in commodities, and it's steel. By the okay? way, I miss Porter and Vinny. We got to get them. We're going to get them on next week. So we're going to have By these the guys way, on next week. I love Vinny. I do love You know, I love yeah. you. You know this. Yeah. But there's a but. No, there's no but here. Oh, because we love, we love Vinny. Don't we love Vinny? We love him. But think about Vinny's year. Stocks aside, they've crushed it. Yeah. But think, he's so a Met fan. Oh. Okay, I you mean, ready? Hold, hold on. on. I have... He's a Met fan. You can't even make it up. Yeah. In his wildest dreams, he never thought the Mets would be 12 games okay. under 500. They suck. He's a Jet fan. Think about what just happened this week. Now, the Jets emerged victorious against the Bills because I don't know what Josh Allen was thinking. Some people might think he was throwing that game because he was god-awful. Now, you will say the Jet defense is great. Yeah, I get it. Josh Allen was awful. But somebody tweeted at 6 p.m. on Monday night, and this is verified. Go to Darren Rovell's Twitter account. Some person tweeted, in two and a half hours from now, Aaron Rodgers will tear his Achilles tendon on a rain-soaked MetLife field. And two hours and 24 minutes later, that happened. So if you're a Met fan this year, you're miserable. And if you're a Jet fan, you're like, you got okay. to be kidding me. 8.17 p.m., before, right before kickoff, I text Vinny and Porter. I have this sick feeling Rogers is going to get hurt. No, you didn't. I swear do on that. my life. He'll tell you. You put 8, the 17 p.m. You put the horns. I put the you horns did because it. I know Vinny wasn't feeling well. I'm like, Vinny, only thing that could go wrong now for you now is that Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. And literally it happens. And I wrote, gone, sick, dude. He, he tore his Achilles. You can look, you can ask them. I, I don't know. I didn't put it on Twitter. I said it to him, but I was half joking because that's what happens to Mets and Jets fans. You know what? Give the Jets credit for coming back and pulling out All right, that so game. So back right? to now, we how did we get there, Dan? We got there through the airlines. Blah, oh blah, yeah, blah, Jets, blah. very good. So let's take a look at Delta, for example. And we talked about this on Fast Money. I thought there was a very good chance that Delta, and this is going back months, would trade up to about forty nine dollars. You say, what is forty nine dollars? Forty nine dollars was the high, basically in March of twenty twenty one. Guess where it traded up to? Forty nine dollars and eighty one cents. As we sit here today, Delta Airlines is sub forty. You got it. You said it just five minutes ago. Yeah. You said you got to trade these stocks. If you get down to about 37 and a half, you buy it again. Why? And you trade the rate. Why? Because that's how you trade them, Dan. Oil, that's oil is how now, you trade them. Okay. You're negative on the consumer. Uh, putting 100%. In, and you think oil is not going to get crushed. No, it's not. So why would you own these Trading stocks? vehicles. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that they're not. I'm saying you can trade the inflection. See, I'm saying along. People say term. we always agree on everything. We're not agreeing right now. We got to get to something else, Dan, where all these stocks trade in the dark pools and high frequency trading. Oh, I, wait I, a second. Yeah. Well, I know a high frequency yeah. trade trading company. I like when you get exercise. Now I'm just going to do this to piss you off. You, we text each other during the week, don't we? Yeah. We talk about what are we going to talk about? Little we, group chats. What do they call we have it? group chats. How do you, cr you create that? Yeah, you, Is there like a group you're chat? You're just in them. You don't know how to create them. I, I, honestly, I don't know how to create them. We got them. you. We got but you. But in a group chat, Danny, you wanted to talk about- Vertu. I know. You're shaking your head. 
I can see it. I can see the steam coming out of your ears. The SEC is coming at them because they're saying over the course of 2018 and part of 2019 that Virtu had a software that allowed proprietary traders at Virtu to see trades from large institutional investors. Like, why would prop traders be even so? They would know if a large institution was selling a stock over a period of a couple days or whatever it might be. So it could be helpful. Now, remember, ITG got in trouble for Mm. stuff like that not disclosing. KCG got in trouble for this in terms of, and they also had the software implosion. Virtue bought both of those companies. They were integrating during this time period. So Doug Sifu, the CEO, blamed a little bit. Listen, we didn't close the loop on this. Nothing was traded. How do you not know? Why were there so many people that had a username and a password for this information? They're they're just alleging they did the wrong Mm -hmm. thing. My, My point is this. I think in general, you have to assume, and then we talked about what happened with clearing, with everybody selling data and so forth like this. If you're an institution, just double check when you're checking the box on where you're trading and doing things like this. But I don't know what's going to end up happening with this, but people should read the complaint. And then the response was you really didn't address. Read so. your Q's and twos. What do you say all the time? Well, that's Q's and K's. I'm talking Q's about where you route your orders. Read your pay Q's attention. And so, uh, as we mentioned, the NFL season started. We like to talk about the NFL season. I, I, the Giants, that was embarrassing. I think we all agree on Sunday night. Yeah. As a lifelong Giant fan, that's about as bad a drubbing as I've seen. I hope they recover. But you have some thoughts, I think, this week as we yeah, get into the Yeah, so Dan season. said you probably shouldn't do football this year. You had a great year before last year. You're 500. Don't do it. I go 0-2 this week. I don't, don't even look at me right now, Dan. So I took two. I took a home dog. Pittsburgh laid an egg, right? I, I, let me tell you something. Yeah. I love the Steelers this okay. year. I don't know they, what happened to But them. they had some big injuries during the game, too. So I, I it does not set. No, no. Stop it. it hurts them for this week. So, all right, here we go. Do you think that Bill Belichick, as a home dog, two weeks in a row won't cover one of the two weeks? I think Miami, which had an impressive win, obviously, yeah. out West, is coming into Foxborough this week. They're two-and-a-half-point favorites in New England. I'm taking New England. And the points, that. that's one, right? And I think this Jet, now that you have a week to prepare for Zach Wilson and what Dallas did, obviously, to the Giants, again, one week on either side doesn't make Dallas's home opener, laying nine-and-a-half. I think they're going to come at the Jets hard. And I'm going to go with Pittsburgh again. Now at home on Monday night against Cleveland. Cleveland looked great, right? Pittsburgh looked terrible. Give me Pittsburgh as a home dog again two weeks in a row. So I'll take my chances with those three. Pittsburgh plus the points, Patriots plus the points, and Dallas laying the points. Those are my three picks this week. Dan, I always do better when you take another nah. side. You're going to be in Dallas. You I'm, must I, well, love I, Dallas. I wasn't even listening. Okay, you know what? Yeah, he Whatever. Was listening. He, Whatever, he's, man. He's feigning that he wasn't Whatever, listening. Whatever, man. I, I bet you go one in, I, I think you go one and two this weekend. Okay, I'll give you three to one odds on that. That I, I hear we go. We, I, nobody, nobody's bucks. interested. Fine. In this. Let me say fine. this. Yeah. We, we're in this pool. Where yeah, you, we are. Where you can buy teams, pool. a 250 pool. Yeah. And you can short a team. My short this year are the Patriots. There's a chance that the Patriots go 4 and 13. That's oh, so how shitty like they team. are. Okay. No, I'm just if saying. You say so. I'm just saying. I'm with you. The line represents that. By the way, one last thing. Speaking of games and gaming, can I just mention because last week. Hold on a second. When you say can't, you're asking us for permission. I got to close last the looked, loop on GameStop here. There are three of us. This is your podcast. Last Thursday night, the SEC, because of course it happened on Thursday night after a podcast. Thursday came night. Out and said we're investigating Ryan Cohen for trading and. Bed Bath and Beyond, that rope of dope he pulled a couple years ago in the stock, right? Yeah. One of the okay. Options, so they're investigating the for that. Thing. The GameStop quarter was reported a couple weeks back, obviously with no conference call at all. I will say this: where they made money was in their bond portfolio. He's smart enough to allocate hundreds of million dollars into Treasuries. That's what he's doing with his cash. That's where they earned the bulk of their money, and they still lost money in the quarter. But I ask you this question: Sure. They have a hundred million dollar buyback. That they had three hundred million dollar buyback. They've used two hundred. If you're a GameStop bull, wouldn't you argue, why are you buying treasuries when you can buy $100 million worth of your stock, which it's not doing? And I'll just note that Ryan Cohen hasn't tweeted since August 2nd 
And that last tweet, I believe, was, there is nothing more foolish than cat litter in video games. That was Ryan Cohen's last tweet on August 2nd. So again, you tell me, GameStop stock has come down. I, I wouldn't mess with it. I'm just pointing it out. Yeah, the, the, the one thing world. I would just say as far as the company is basically going to lose just a little bit of money on a gap basis this year. I just And they have $1.2 billion well in aware cash. And, and what's in the market in cap? It's $5.5 billion and they have 700 in debt. So I'm, what I'm they have no is, debt. They have no debt. I'm just looking here on the yeah. facts that it says there. Okay, so I mean, like that's a twenty. No, it's I'm, I'm then twenty percent of their market cap essentially. Well, is the in cash. thing is the free float. I won't go into it, but I had yeah. couldn't get away with, from this podcast without mentioning that from last week that people should be paying attention to stuff like this because they didn't pay attention to Adam Aaron at AMC and they let him run right over him. And so again, pay attention to these people. You, you like John Travolta? Of course. I do. I like John as an actor. I don't know. Kind of face off, maybe like John Travolta. Uh, John, 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 John Travolta. Fiction. He's, he's not green. Yeah. Saturday Night Fever is a genius. Sorry, yeah. Deborah Winger. Anybody? Yeah. yeah, the Urban Cowboy. Look at you, Urban yeah. Cow. That's the movie. They're in yeah. Urban Cowboy. Yeah, but that's Cowboy C O W boy. Right. Lassos and stuff. But when we come back. We have the real Urban Cowboy. That's Mike Cow K A O. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. So as many of you people have gotten to know, I worked not at Goldman Sachs, Danny Moses, although it was Goldman Sachs. I worked at J. Aaron, which was the commodities currency group within Goldman Sachs. So we were Goldman employees. But when the phone rang, you didn't answer the phone Goldman Sachs. You answered the phone J. Aaron. As a matter of fact, you answered the phone Aaron if you really wanted to be an asshole. That was the day. So with us today, and this is a thrill for me, and it will be for our audience as well, is Mike Cow. Now, Mike worked at J. Aaron a few years prior to me. He worked on the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index, the GSCI. He now is a private investor at the Cow family office. Michael, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you guys for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. No, it's a pleasure. What a small world. It's a pleasure for us as well because... If you, first of all, if you don't follow his Twitter account, Danny, you're doing it wrong. Is that correct? I you mean, are doing it wrong if you've you do gotten, not. You've gotten to follow this, and the stuff you put out on Twitter is fantastic. Let's get right into it, because I've said it for a while, Mike, and I'm curious as to your thoughts. The 21st century is going to be littered with villains, I think, 
at the top of that list are going to be central bankers. Not that they're bad people, but I think the havoc that we're seeing now in terms of bond markets, currency moves, to a certain extent, commodity moves, inflation problem, what's going on in Japan, blah, 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 is all at the foot of central banks. So maybe speak to us about, if I'm right or wrong, one, but the environment that you think we're finding ourselves in right now. Having the commodities background at the very beginning of my career, in a way, kind of colors my worldview a little bit. So I think back in 2021, I wrote extensively about how the setup for oil was very bullish in terms of geopolitics, but also the supply demand balance, the whole macro setup, and that the oil bull market would then cause the Fed to become very vigilant and start raising rates aggressively. Those were two big calls that I got right in 2021 and 2022. My view is that oil, because it is the most important commodity in the world. It is a primary factor of production for so many different things. My view is that oil is what started what I call the inflation conflagration, right? And it then leapt into other sectors that are much stickier with certain structural setups that I view as dry tinder, if you will, and oil was the spark. And so as we fast forward to today, we have this situation where I recently wrote a piece paying a little uh, homage to my favorite band Metallica. It talked about, I called it the four horsemen of U.S. resilience and why these factors are making the Fed's job pretty difficult. And the four horsemen, I'll just enumerate them. I think there are certain demographic and structural tailwinds that are keeping, for, for instance, labor and shelter components of inflation sticky. There's what I call the fiscal dominatrix, which is that the U.S. has really been the most profligate in terms of fiscal support for its consumer since the pandemic. And even as we're still feeling the tail effects of that, there's still two trillion of unspent money essentially from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, ironically named. The third horseman is we in the U.S. have far less floating rate dependence than, say, Europe or the rest of the world, both on the corporate and consumer side. We can get into that. And then fourth is back to oil. We are more energy independent in terms of we're the largest oil producer right now we're a net exporter. So I think these four factors are going to be a setup that makes the Fed, I think, potentially break one or both of the following. It's either going to break our labor market here, or it's going to break the rest of the world's economies. I'm starting to think because the transmission mechanism of all of this Fed tightening is basically going to be the U.S. dollar. I've been calling it the U.S. dollar wrecking ball for the last two, three years. I really think that we're starting to see the rest of the world's economies start to come where the wheels are starting to come off. We're see obviously seeing it in China. We're definitely starting to see it in Europe. And we're very topical for today's conversation is this morning, the ECB raised 25 bips, and yet the euro is plunging. And I read that as uh, the market interpreting what I've been saying for the last year now, which is I really don't think any other major central bank in the world is going to be able to outhawk the Fed. I think the real question to ask is who's going to start out dubbing the Fed? You've got Japan, you've got China. They've been easing the whole time, but you're starting to see certain countries in Latin America start to cut rates 
And I think you're going to start seeing it in Europe. Bring it back to oil for a second, because I think people look at oil prices and they garner different things. Some people look at oil and say, the U.S. consumer must be strong. China must be okay because oil is where it is, right? They don't factor in whether it's geopolitical, cuts from OPEC plus and so forth. So there's a lot in there. What I'm focused on right now is natural gas because it seems like it's about to have its day. It's got to catch up at some point. Either oil needs to pull back. And what you just talked about, Europe, obviously, they indicated they're going to stop raising rates here because at the same time they raise rates today, they lower GDP. Yay, everybody's celebrating. But yeah, they're now realizing that growth is really slowing and they're in a stagflationary environment. But Walk me through what you think about nat gas here. Then I have some other questions on oil, because to me, the risk that Europe faced last year this time, we were all concerned about nat gas supplies from Russia, all the stuff that was going to happen. It feels like people are underappreciating the risk right now. We're in a shoulder month for nat gas, and it feels like it's about to rip. You have thoughts there? I'm not as deep in the weeds in natural gas as I am in oil, but I'll just say the following thought. I, because natural gas is a more regional commodity, I actually don't think the impact is as great as the oil headwind. I do think, though, that at the start of the Ukraine war, where you saw, for instance, TTF, the European natural gas prices really spike, and that in turn, because of essentially LNG came to the rescue, that that also led domestic Henry Hub prices to spike. But they can spike only to a certain extent because there's still a huge bottleneck in terms of how much of that ARB, that international ARB, can be closed. But I do think that Europe in particular learned perhaps a bad lesson from last year's very mild winter. I think it was like the warmest winter in 40 years in Europe. And Europe has just doubled down on its really what I think nonsensical ESG initiatives. And if they get a cold winter, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real problem. I actually think that Mother Nature gave the ECB a huge pass and that the ECB couldn't have even tightened this much if it weren't for mother nature last winter. So just to follow up on the oil, if the U.S. consumer does start to wane, we're seeing the airlines now that are obviously blaming higher oil prices. That's transparent. We know that's had an impact on their earnings. But at what point do you think oil starts to pull back if people believe the U.S. consumer is going to weaken? Or do you believe that it's just set in stone now because of inflation, because of lack of production over the last kind of three to five years that we're set up now on a demand supply problem going forward. What would be the trigger to send oil back down? I have a very nuanced view on oil. I do believe in the long-term bullish oil trade, but since basically I would say April of 2022, when oil was still a hundred plus, I turned very cautious. And while that view has been right until fairly recently, I think that in the short term, this call it clash of the titans between the Fed and OPEC plus. If you think about it, OPEC plus, I, th I think of OPEC plus as the central bank for oil and Fed as the central bank for dollars. To me, if the two are going to go head to head, to me, it's a no contest that Fed is eventually going to win this battle. The Fed is going to basically wind up forced to break the back of this rally. And what I see as the, again, that the U.S. dollar wrecking ball is the transmission mechanism. When you think about oil, it's a dollar-based commodity. You've now got this twin wrecking ball, especially for countries like China and Japan, especially where they're importing 80 to 90 percent of their oil and it's denominated in dollars. Now, fortunately, I guess China, because they're actually battling a deflation problem, they could probably stand to import a little bit of inflation. And plus, they've been stockpiling. So I also think that some of this, quote, strong demand we're seeing 
First, it's a seasonal component. So I've been saying don't conflate the strong seasonal with a super strong secular. And also the second conflation to, to avoid is don't conflate the Chinese demand with Chinese consumption because China has been stockpiling like crazy. And stockpiling for what is the right. question, right? I'm glad you brought that up. Stockpiling for what? And we'll have that conversation. But you mentioned the U.S. dollar is a bit of a wrecking ball. I agree with that. Great. Wasn't that a Taylor Swift song? That, anybody yeah. loved? I, that was, no. I think you got the wrong- uh, Miley Cyrus. Miley, yeah. The yeah. same person. You've no. never seen the yeah, same. Whatever, guy. Whatever. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So here you go. In August of 2015, eight years ago, deval in the yuan, the ripple effects for broader markets were felt for months after. If you, were, I know you remember. Now we're seeing, nobody's talking about it, but right before our very eyes- you have this weakening of the Chinese currency that nobody, whatever reason, seems to want to acknowledge. People's Bank of China doing everything they can. They're not going to be successful. That's number one. So speak 100%. to that because then I'm going to take you from China. I'm going to go to Japan. So just let's talk about the yuan for a second, the importance or lack yeah, thereof. So, so actually in March, I'm going, to, I'm going to take a little bit of credit here. In March, during the height of the regional banking crisis, I actually wrote a thread called uh, Ball in a China Shop. And that was a play on the US dollar wrecking ball. And I said that, look, I think this regional banking crisis is going to be relatively provincial compared to the, to the deflationary impulse that's going to come out of China. So I've been very bearish on the Chinese yuan for a while now. I've been, that's actually been one of my best trades. I've been shorted. And China's obviously got a whole host of problems. So just like I was saying how in our situation, to use this mental model of, of the way noise-canceling headphones work, right? With noise-canceling headphones, right, it takes a signal and then it basically slips at 180 degrees out of phase. And that's something called destructive interference. In the U.S. economy, we've got this destructive interference between these structural and fiscal tailwinds battling the Fed's monetary headwinds. And it's creating this illusion of Goldilocks because of this destructive interference, right? China has an augmentative problem. Their short-term cyclical bust from the property bubble is now cascading into their longer-term demographic bust. And that's what you call constructive interference. It's going to be a real shit show for China. And so the PBOC is really stuck. When you consider, if you think the Fed is, is stuck between a rock and a hard place, the PBOC has a much, much bigger problem. Let me ask you this question. This is a leading question. I'd be a great trial attorney. But if you think winter is coming, if you're getting ready, if you're preparing for something, you stockpile things. So you mentioned the Chinese have been stockpiling, which, by the way, is true. Not only oil, other things as well. What are they stockpiling for, in your opinion? So that's the concern, right? Especially when you know, also know that their youth unemployment is almost 22%. At least. Probably, male unemployment. Probably much higher than that. That's but right. Yes. That's right. And mostly male unemployed, right? So uh, the obvious implication is that they're stockpiling for some sort of kinetic escalation across the Taiwan Strait. So that's a huge concern. And when you consider the economic challenges facing the CCP, China and Xi probably feel like a cornered beast. Exactly right. What better way to create a, quote, wag the tail situation than to say, hey, you know what, stir the nationalism and basically do something, especially while we're still distracted by Ukraine. Now, it's interesting so, you say that because people will push back and say, this is the worst time for them to do something, given that they're wounded. And I've said for a while, and by the way, President Biden actually alluded to this about three weeks or so ago, that a wounded China potentially could be prone to do what 
I'm paraphrasing, irrational things. So I think the worse things get for them, this is just my opinion, the more likelihood there are to do something. By the way, go through history. That's not unprecedented at all, Danny. No, not at all. I'm looking right. at gold prices over in China versus where they are in the rest of the world. And now you're trading, I think, at a very large premium. I think it's 6%. I think if you want to look at it like that. So why are they stocking up on gold as well? Now, there could be restrictions, the ability to buy stuff overseas. I get it. But that kind of falls in line with what you're talking about in terms of being concerned. And I've said for a while, Michael, that geopolitical risk in general just is underpriced throughout the world. I, I really haven't understood that, how it hasn't made its way back into the market. It shows itself in certain commodities. It may be showing itself in oil and other things potentially, but it just doesn't feel like it's priced correctly. You have thoughts in general on just volatility, general how it's just been so tame for such a long period of time. It feels like there's a massive disconnect there. I 100% agree with And Like in, in February, I was invited to go present a paper uh, at West Point. And the name of our paper was called U.S. Dollar Primacy and an Era of Economic Warfare. The economic warfare part is where I want to go with this because I, in our paper, we basically said, look, we've been over relying on all these sanctions that, that encourage this active seeking out of alternatives to the U.S. dollar. Now, I don't think that any of these BRICS initiatives are going to work. But in it, we also talk about how because of the rising geopolitical tensions, it's time to really focus on aligning our geopolitical strategy with our economic strategy. And that's something if you think about, OK, so the U.S. Army War College has this interesting framework to look at national power. There are four pillars of national power. The dying framework is diplomatic informational, military, and economic. So if you think about it, we've got very well-constructed government apparatus around the diplomatic, the informational, and the military part. There's no cohesive economic force, right? So here's a good example of how one hand doesn't talk to the other. On the one hand, the administration is doing the right things in terms of trying to hamstring China's efforts in chips with targeted export controls, the CHIPS Act, et cetera. But on the other hand, you look at our energy policy. Why the hell have we taken our SPR down to levels not seen since 1981 and allowing China to stockpile it at our expense? Why are we doing that? That's insane to me. The one hand doesn't talk to the other. And that is one of the problems with a sort of free market system in terms of the economic part of it, right? There's no government apparatus around that part. How important is the SPR. We're at levels we probably haven't seen. You'd know the numbers better than I do. I would imagine it's 40 or 50 or so years. It's a national yeah. security concern without question. At a certain point, the administration looked like geniuses in terms of commodity trader lens. They sold crude at effectively the highs. A month and a half ago, two months, crude was $65. They looked like they were going to have yep. the greatest commodity trade since Gary Cohn squeezed the aluminum storage <laughs> market at Jay Aaron, going back to Jay Aaron. But with that said, that. <laughs> it's getting away from them now. And the farther that it gets away from them, the more difficult this becomes. Is Should we be concerned at a national security level? Forget about the commodity play, just in terms of security. I think it's a mistake. Now, there are some who would argue that, hey, we don't need the SPR given the amount of uh, production that we're producing close to 13 million barrels per day. But the problem with that idea is that our energy, in my piece, I put quotes around energy independence. I think the U.S. shale miracle is not going to last forever. The reason why I'm long-term bullish, despite all of the macro headwinds, is that 
the every major shale basin besides the Permian Basin is in decline already. I think the Permian is still growing, but it's not going to grow forever. And it's amazing how even at when we are net exporting as much as we're exporting back in 2021 or 2022, when I was bullish oil, I basically said that the independence part of it is still a bit of a facade because our shale grades, our primary light grades, as you know, Guy, but our refinery system is tooled to handle much lighter grades. So even though we're net exporting all this light sweet grades, we still need to import the heavies to blend. You remember when Granholm was talking about stuff like export bans, when oil went to 140, they were talking about export bans. I'm like, okay, if you did something like that, you, you would actually blow the price of gasoline out of the water because we'd wind up having to import everything from the Middle East. So that's something. Lack of understanding how, you know, the refinery world works here in the United States. First of all, Michael, you can speak to this. I think I don't think there's been a new refinery built since 1972 or 73, which is just amazing. So there's only so much capacity that we have. And we're looking at levels in terms of demand and stuff. We're probably at pre-COVID levels. So everything you mentioned is exactly right. It would be lovely if we could just refine our own stuff into gasoline, heating oil, jet fuel, and all those things. Unfortunately, we can't. There's a component that has to be imported from other places. Anyway, thank you for pointing that out. Please continue. But that all said, though, I think long-term, I think we do have an energy security problem. That all said, the reason why I'm actually bearish oil right now is 100% because of the macro headwind. Like, to me, I think we are on the precipice of a 1998 type of scenario. And last summer, I wrote a thread talking about, could this be Asian Contagion 2.0? After I left JR and I went off to business school, and after business school, I joined a hedge fund in LA called Canyon. And when I joined Canyon, in 1997, I had just come off the back of honeymooning in Southeast Asia. And you remember summer of 1997 is when the tide bought the Malaysian ringgit, Indonesia rupiah first devalued, right? But it took 18 months for that to metastasize into something much more sinister, which as we all know, it led to the Russian default in October of 98. And then LTCM collapsed at the end of 1998. So I think that we saw the first manifestation of the dollar, US dollar wrecking ball last year. And then everybody was ready to basically say, okay, you know what? The dollar has peaked. The Fed's uh, hiking cycle is over. And then I started writing about this saying, not so fast, because look, if you believe that the currencies are driven by interest rate differentials, interest rate differentials can widen, not just because the Fed is hiking faster than the rest of the world, they can also widen because the rest of the world is outdubbing faster than the Fed. And at the top of this conversation, I basically gave you the four reasons why I think the U.S. economy is more resilient than the rest of the world. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I think every other major central bank is going to wind up outdubbing the Fed, the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. We don't know exactly where or what it's going to break, but I'm pretty sure something's going to break. Normally, correct me if I'm wrong, dollar correlation to oil is strong dollar, weaker oil. In That's this right. case, we're getting both. We're getting strong dollar and strong oil. To your point, things are out of whack here. It ties the hand, I believe, of the Fed. Obviously, if they want to turn dovish, all you're going to do is inflame oil prices even higher to that point. So they're somewhat trapped. 100%. And, and more to that, I want to shift over to Japan, what you just brought up, because we've been talking on this podcast for a long time, why people should be paying attention to the yen in particular for all the implications that it has you can see it, obviously, as the dollar strengthens again to weaken anyway, but they have their own fiscal issues there. 
I don't believe, and Guy doesn't believe, that people are paying enough attention to what's going on over in Japan. And it feels to me like, and you can go back to your days of carry trade and what that means to global liquidity in the markets, but to your point, most blowups start with a currency of some kind, right? And it feels like that one's right. What are your thoughts going on in Japan right now, and, and how is this going to end? Because it just feels inevitable the end's about to just collapse. It's already been a slow train wreck there. And I think that there is much hullabaloo made of the whole, you know, YC tweak where they widened the ban. But I mean, I called it like the weak tweak because look, they it, no sooner had they had they said that, like within, I think, what, less in less than a week, they were out basically buying JGBs again. I think a day, that, I think. I, Two days. Yeah. yeah. The YC is the event horizon of a black hole, right? Once you're crossed there, you're just going to get spaghettified and sucked in. And I don't, and what's the exit strategy? I really don't know. And to tie this back to oil, by the way, I tweeted out last week, I said the YCC equivalent to OPEC, by the way, are these three or four production cuts they've done. How is Saudi Arabia specifically going to be able to subsidize all the other cheaters within OPEC, like Iran and UAE and, and Russia, frankly, at 9 million barrels per day of production when they were producing as much as 12. How are they going to keep unilaterally doing that, especially when global demand starts really falling off a cliff because of these twin, twin wrecking balls of higher prices and stronger dollar? Here's the thing that what worries me as a longer term bull, I, full disclosure, my oil exposure is I have a long-term bet through this oil private equity. That's kind of a self-liquidating private equity. So I'm talking against my long-term book here. I'm very concerned in the short term because if you think about OPEC Plus's tool, their tool, which is supply cuts, is a demand restrictive tool, just like the Fed's only tool, which is the front end of the yield curve, is also demand restrictive. They're both demand restrictive, except that OPEC's tool has the perverse effect of keeping our Fed more vigilant than it should be by this stage of the game. So when we saw the CPI come out this week, that even as the core is still hanging in there, maybe weakening a little bit, you're seeing the food and energy inflation start to like really bounce hard off the low. So if I'm Jerome Powell and I'm thinking that, hey, this whole inflation conflagration got kick-started by oil in the first place, and now it's starting to spike again, I don't necessarily have to hike again. I just have to basically stay tight, and the rest of the world is going to start to outdove me. That's what I think is going to happen. Back to the BOJ for a second, because I believe that's yeah. where QE started, right? That was the first kind of global QE began in Japan, and it feels like it's ending there. It feels like this is the beginning of the end there. They tried it. Bank of England, we saw what happened last year. So that part, how does the faith in the central banks, global central banks, factor in, not to oil per se, markets in general? And if we start to lose faith, the ability to either, we can't print our way out of this anymore. We just talked about inflation. You just mentioned all the areas of inflation, right, where we have food and energy and, and so forth. So what is the end game here, just in general, taking a step back on the macro? What is it going to take? We have to basically wash through 15 years of global QE and finally pay the price? And, and what does the timing look like on this in general? Last year, I wrote a piece. I called it Geopolitical Mosh Pits and Sovereign Endgames. And I basically said that Okay, look, we're in this sort of every man for himself type of world where you've got every central bank dealing with its own sort of inflation problems. I asked the same question, where does this all end? And if you play it out to the true end game, Japan obviously is on the forefront of experimental policy here, right? Their debt to GDP is higher than everybody else's. 
and and the amount of JGBs that the BOJ owns is higher than any other central bank with respect to its sovereign bonds. One school of thought is, hey, they can just cancel the debt, debt jubilee. If a government does that to the degree that the BOJ would have to, I think they, they might be able to get away with it once if they never need to have external financing again, because I think the currency would just implode. If they, 100%. They actually, yeah. The I mean, would what, just totally what, you just, what you just suggested, and I, again, I'm not saying there's a 0% ch- is a chance of anything happening. That would take dollar yen, and again, my opinion, from current levels of about 147 north of 200. This fast. I agree. It would also, yep. I think, Danny, you I would agree, agree with this. The gold market, if there's ever a reason to be bullish gold, that's it. And to your point, you fire that bullet one time, but that means you can never go back to the well again. So you, you better be do, damn sure it's it going to work, which it won't. But let me sort of try to weave all this stuff together. Danny talked about Japan. It started with Japan and might end here. The largest, as Danny has mentioned, the largest holder of U.S. Treasury, Japanese. Our yields are going higher. There's some disconnect between, and you wrote about this, Michael, the volatility index, which is broken, and the bond market in the form of the TLT, which is telling a story. Ten-year yields now in this country are approaching 4.3%, levels we last saw in October of last year. I still think yields are going significantly higher here for the wrong reasons because I think the market is demanding a higher yield to buy U.S. Treasuries, as they should. That's not bullish. On top of which, the yen, which the Bank of Japan will try to defend, but you know what? They can't do it. They tried earlier this week with some language. It didn't work. To the extent that the yen continues to weaken, that's not a good thing. Dollar strength against the yen. The yuan breaking down. The ECB, think about how screwed they are. They're raising rates, understanding that their economy in Europe is a shambles, because inflation is yep. a bigger problem than your economy. These are all <laughs> factual stuff. I'm not making any of this shit up. This is all happening right before our very eyes in real time. I, you know, I don't yep, even know, you know if what? you can I, comment I, on I, that, but that's what I'm looking at right now. I, okay, so I'm not as doom and gloom about U.S. Treasury yields spiking to the moon as, as much as you are, maybe. Because here's the thing. I do think that U.S. Treasuries, despite all the BRICS talk and all the talk about everybody, all these central banks needing to sell U.S. Treasuries, I do think that it is still the primary central bank reserve asset. And it's evident by this, what I call this sort of flight to safety premium that's still embedded in longer term treasuries. I just pulled up a chart on Coifin. I think it's interesting. I wish I could show it to you, but I'll describe it. I, I think the bear steepening that we're seeing right now, and a lot of people are ascribing it to the refunding surprises, maybe central banks selling U.S. Treasury reserves to bolster their currencies. All of that could be true, but I would argue that the level of our yield curve inversion is still fundamentally mispriced than most of the world. Right now, I'm looking at twos, tens. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do twos, tens for five different countries. U.S. twos, tens right now is negative 70 bips, okay? German twos, tens is negative 56 bips. Now, China twos, tens is positive 42. Italy's is positive 49. And Japan's is positive 69, okay? So just think about that for a second. And then think about where each country is from an economic perspective. We're the strongest out of those five, 
why is our yield curve the most inverted? And by the way, this is after significant bear steepening. Our twos tens just two months ago was something like negative 105 or negative 110. So we've we bear steepened. So I I think that part of the reason for this is that our twos tens has been inverted because there has been this sort of flight to safety premium embedded in our long bonds relative to the rest of the world. That's why we have a huge uh, benefit in being the world's uh, reserve currency and reserve asset. That could change at some point. But one thing to, to close the loop on the Japan talk, one thing that we've certainly all learned is that it can be kicked a lot longer than a lot of people think. Because who would have thought that, that BOJ could, could still get away with what it's doing even to this day right now? They're basically saying, okay, with uh, CPI cresting 3%, we're still okay with keeping JGB yields at, what is it, 20, 25 or 50 bips? We're going to go to 100 now, so the range is 50 to 100. But obviously, as soon as it got to 60, they you know, scream bloody murder and then They'll say we'll be there at 65, 7. Now we're Let's north of 70. And, we'll continue. And, and by the way, the other sovereign end game that we didn't talk about, and this has been done in certain emerging markets, post Jay Aaron, I was in doing capital structure ARB and restructuring. I'm familiar with the bankruptcy process on the corporate side. Now, in a corporate restructuring, you basically wipe out the debt and the debt becomes post-reorg equity. And the value of the post-reorg equity is completely dependent on the quality of the assets on the left side of your balance sheet. If you basically focus that mental model onto the sovereign model, then it comes down to what countries have the best national assets. Once again, the U.S. reigns supreme here in terms of geographical assets, natural resource assets, food availability, abundant food availability in an endgame scenario. And by the way, I don't think we're actually going to see this endgame scenario in our lifetimes. I think these are long processes. But even if we did, in that sort of restructuring model where you have to extinguish debt and somehow offer warrants on the left side of the balance sheet assets, the U.S. has a huge advantage vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And I think that's part of the reason why I think that the, the U.S. dollar system and the U.S. treasury bond is going to continue to have a safety bid to it. Follow him on Twitter at Urban Cowboy. That's Urban Cow, but that's K-A-O, boy, just to be clear. And I got to tell you something. There's a lot of shit out there on Twitter, Danny. As you know, tell you what, your account, Michael, is not. Your account is must-watch. I look forward to seeing your post. So thank you for joining us here on The Table. Oh, thank you so much for having having me. Real pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.